Thank you for joining us for our third episode of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am Michael Haig. I write, speak, and read about polyamorous ethics and relationship ethics more generally. I've been a practicing polyamorous community member for probably nine years. Joining me from Noonan, Georgia, is Mandy Conant. She is with the wonderful Atlanta Poly Weekend. Hi, why don't you introduce yourself more? I am the director of Atlanta Poly Weekend. I have been practicing poly for the better part of 17 years now. Nice. And I live with both of my nesting partners here in Noonan and my two younger children. We practice a form of poly that we like to call familial poly. Hmm. Our partners are our family and our metas are our family, a very tribal poly, but one of my partners hates that word, so I don't, I try not to use it. We used to kind of describe it as kitchen table poly. That was before we moved my other partner in. It's almost a step more intimate than kitchen Hmm. table poly now, but not, you know, we're not like a triad because the guys are not, um, they don't have sexual relationships at all, but they do have a, a very brotherly relationship. Well, and you have the most statistically most common polyamorous relationship, which is two men and a pivot woman where the men are not sexually engaged, right, for right? nesting. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. You didn't know that? I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think you know that polyamorous philosophy comes out of um, feminist liberation movements in the, the philosophical discourse and is, was originally primarily a sort of feminist thrust. Awesome. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk about APW, which is Atlanta Poly Weekend again everyone, which is, first of all, just the dates, right, are uh, June the 1st through 3rd. It is. And it's in downtown Atlanta. It is at the Sheraton Atlanta downtown. Great. And why don't you introduce that for us? I mean, I could say some great things, and I'm going to say some great things about last year, but I, I obviously you have much more experience with it than I do, so I think you do a lot better. Uh, this will be my third year as director. This is the 8th annual Atlanta Poly Weekend. It's come from a conference of 20, 30 people to um, last year we had over 200. Hmm. Um, it's it's not a huge conference, and we kind of like it like that. We feel like if it gets to be too big, we're going to end up with that lack of intimacy that we really get to have at this level. We get to know the presenters and the attendees have a chance to, to meet these uh, pseudo-celebrities. We're a three-day family-friendly poly conference for people who practice polyamory or ethical non-monogamy, their advocates, and their families, or people even interested in, in it. Yeah, and, and I say this a lot on here, so I'm gonna, just going to throw this in real quick, but you, know, you can be poly without actually currently having multiple partners. Like, oh, absolutely. There's a yeah. lot of people who aren't sure if they're considered interested or if they're considered poly. Like, if that's the lifestyle you're choosing to lead, even if you're not currently dating multiple people, um, you're still non-monogamous or polyamorous if that's what you're doing. Absolutely. I, I think it's funny when people say, I'm not poly right now. Yeah, right. Like, I was poly last year. I was, I'm poly next year, I hope. Right. But I'm not poly right now. I'm looking for another partner, though. Well, you're definitely poly <laughs> if you're looking for another partner. I'm just, I'm just not poly right now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I, mean, I, I used to use the, the joke term for a long time, theoretical poly. Mm. And it was about four years after uh, my my primary partner and I decided we were going to open up that any of us got a date. Uh-huh. Um, so, so for four years, we were just theoretically poly. 
<laughs> we, 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 we tried to get dates, you know, but there's a lot of it. We, there's so much actual uh, community around it, right? It's only 5% of people actually are active poly, uh, practicing polyamorous relationships, and only like 25 to 30% have uh, been in one at some time. So it's just a much smaller smaller space. So it's not the kind of thing where if you just talk to, you know, and you can, you do, I mean, I definitely date people just meeting people, but I mean, have been much more successful at dating through meeting members of the community and sort of the extended community. Oh, yes, it's quite an incestual community. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, especially in our area, I guess. Um, well, I think in, I mean, I think in any area, I mean, we're in two of the larger demographic spaces, right? Yeah. Charlotte and Georgia are huge, and yet still, you know, I, I talk about things with that. I was an ex-partner now who was breaking up with someone then, and she was really worried, like, I don't want to say anything about this to anyone else because even though I sort of had a bad experience I don't think he's like a bad partner and I know that if I say like oh he was a bad partner I'm mad about this he'll just never get a date again yeah Uh, because it's such a small small community it's it's really hard to find a partner that one of your partners hasn't dated or a friend of yours hasn't dated or maybe dated an ex-partner and uh, it's I don't know it's very incestuous. <laughs> well, it depends on how well the how well your your relationships go, how fun that is. Because I definitely had a most recently, I guess, one of my um, they're both ex partners now, I guess. But I started dating a woman who had broken up with the guy that my partner had started dating right before she broke up with me. Mm-hmm. So we like switched partners. <laughs> it was <laughs> so that was sort of entertaining. Oh, when well, I first started dating Ryan, who is one of my nesting partners, I was actually talking to another guy as well and found out they were metas. And neither of them, of course, knew that they were each talking to me. The other guy got very bent when Hmm. I decided to date Ryan and not him. Not because they were metas, just I was definitely more interested in Ryan and I only have a certain amount of spoons. Right. I I just didn't have the energy for two brand new poly relationships. Polysaturated, right? Very, yes. Um, So he got very bent that his his meta, quote-unquote, won. And (laughs) and and does not speak to either of us now. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know. Those are interesting relationships. They're very complex. It's a lot for people to navigate if they're relatively new or it's, you know, what, yeah. It's interesting because, right, jealousy is the emotion that's all about fear of loss or perceived loss, right? Right. It's well, a lot the, easier the thing to, sh- to remember is that jealousy is not an emotion. Right. Well, it's a composite emotion. <laughs> right? but, it's it's definitely a side effect of emotions, but I don't think that jealousy is an emotion. Well, and there's a lot of re- research questions about what really counts as an emotion. Can you tell me more about what you mean when you say emotion? Because people, I'm sorry, but my, my actual meta, meta, meta background is in linguistics, where basically I learned that no words mean anything. So for simplicity... Uh... Uh, you tell me what you want to use the word emotion for, and I'll sort of respond to that. Oh, I, d- I just mean like your basic emotions, like fear, anger, happiness. Okay, so when you it's... say basic emotion, um, there's a, a grouping of emotions. I think there's like seven or eight positive and five or six negative ones that are associated with a unique facial expression that are considered to be fairly universal, cross-culturally true. Is that what you mean when you say emotion? Yes, you and you were just outsmarting me at this point. Like, sorry, I'm not. I'm not trying to. I'm trying to get the terms because I, I use these terms. Something that comes up consistently for me. Uh-huh. Uh, so, in in sort of emotional uh, philosophy, uh, we talk about composite emotions versus base emotions because most people want to say something like disgust 
is not actually a basic emotion, but it's one of the most important as far as regulating social interactions in a very negative way, emotions that we deal with. But it actually appears to be a sort of mix of um, anger and revulsion, right? Um, and right. From, from a facial expression context. So the move that I see done a lot is that jealousy is considered is described like a composite emotion. But I think you're right. I think it's way more complex than even a composite emotion. It's not like an initial knee-jerk response. You have to realize that you think you're jealous. Like you get upset. Right. Well, and you have like to I think that out. I think if you sit and you think about why you're jealous, it's always a different emotion. Like there's an emotion behind the jealousy. Mm-hmm. And that's why I don't really consider jealousy an emotion because there is actually an emotion driving it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get to be the driver and the car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess I guess that's where I come from. Yeah, well, and it's a good way to think about it regardless of how you want to construe or construct, right? Because it ends up telling you to take a step out and try and figure out why you're jealous. Right, which, that's one which... of the classes I teach. Jealousy is... it's. It's not an emotion. It's it's a it's a side effect of an emotion. So if you step back and like when you're sick and your nose is runny, okay, why is your nose runny? There's a reason your nose is runny. So fix that problem, and then your nose will stop running. If you step back and you realize why are you jealous, and you ask yourself why you're jealous. Oh well, I'm angry that they're spending more time with this person. Okay, so then let's fix the anger. Let's. Let's go, let's get to the core problems of why we're jealous and the jealousy will fade. It may not fade completely, but Mm -hmm. it'll fade enough to where we can control it, not be destructive with it. Yeah, that's always a good point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, especially the not fade completely. Like, I mean, some people, you know, have no jealousy or completely get over it and that's great. And some people don't and that's fine. It's just about incorporating it in a healthy and, and sort of fair and ethical way into your relationship. And how you deal with it, I mean. Right. I don't think we can tell people to not be jealous because there's... Right. People are just inherently jealous. Some people are. So it's just just what you do with it and how you control it and and make it not such a negative force in your life and in your relationship. Yeah, and inherent's also a really interesting sort of term there because it turns out that for most ethical judgments, people actually have an emotional response first and then work backwards from their emotional response to try and figure out what the ethical cause of their emotional response was. I can see that. It's called uh, spontaneous confabulation, if you want the super (laughs) fun technical term. That's Uh, a fun, fun term. Isn't it? It is. It's confabulation. Uh, What's interesting is people don't recognize that they're doing it. They actually think that they had the reason beforehand and it created the emotion rather than the emotion creating the reason. Oh, emotions are so much quicker than reasons are. Right. But what is also fascinating is that most of our behavior actually functions as if it was reason makes emotion when someone explains their reason. So like this, I get mad that someone didn't wash the dishes. And really, I'm probably mad that I'm inconvenienced. Like I'm inconvenienced, so I just become angry. Mm -hmm. Um, And I start yelling. And one of my partners says, what's wrong? And I say, oh, well, someone left the dishes out. And I think it's just unfair that people don't do the dishes once they've used the dishes. Right. Right. And that's not at all why I'm upset. I'm upset (laughs) because I'm inconvenienced. But what's interesting, right, is then after that, they'll go, oh, okay. And then it, it turns out that when you say a sentence like that, it actually changes the way that you believe. And in the future, you will get mad because of that reason rather than because of the inconvenience. And that's actually how we create 
what are called emotional heuristics, which means quick decision-making systems that we use repetitiously. Wow. And the reason for that evolutionarily is if you see someone, you know, lives with you and they go and they, I don't know, murder a deer and you go, whoa, that was scary. Are you going to murder me? And they're like, huh, no, I'm not going to do that because deer aren't people. You're like, okay, I can live with that because now you know that you're not going to get murdered because you're not a deer, right? And then the person makes that part of their emotional heuristic going forward. And so people who make descriptions like that where they say no because you're not a person, but then they go murder someone, then they get thrown out of the tribe or hurt, right? Because right. you can't trust them. You don't know how to trust them. Right. And so it actually works sort of really backwards to the way that we build up emotional paradigms. So the thing that causes emotional responses, right, is count what I call counter-normative events. So counter-normative meaning, uh, normative means the things you'd experience normally in your day-to-day -day life. So if something happens that you don't normally experience, you get an emotional response, and then from that emotional response, you attempt to confabulate backwards to figure out a rational, logical explanation for why you're having that emotional response. So something isn't available to you, your partner isn't there when you wanted them to be, um, not that they should have been there, but it turns out they were on a date or something. This causes an emotional, you know, uh, kickback, which you then try and figure out why, and your response is, oh, I was jealous because they're out with this other person, and that's normal in our society and justifiable to be jealous. But hmm. if you were used to that happening, that was something that you were expecting to happen, you weren't expecting them to be home anyway, like, they were already going to go out and ended up going out with someone else or something, you may not have that response because it wasn't something negative. And if you want to see this in the most hilarious proof ever, walk into a tree by accident. You will start <laughs> by getting mad at the tree and thinking it's a bad tree, right? Like, it's the tree's fault. How is it in the middle of your pathway? <laughs> and then you'll go, wait, that literally can't be true. The tree is standing still. <laughs> you, you, I mean, it is. Your first response is like WTF. Yeah, you're, you're mad at that tree. And right, you're trying at the to, tree, yeah. And you're trying to come up with reasons that the tree's fault. And if you can come up with one, you will go with it. Like if the tree's <laughs> overgrowing the path, you'll like rip half the tree off so it's not in the path anymore. Right, make that tree suffer. Yeah, if possible, you will blame the tree. The only reason you won't blame is if you can't. And that's the other thing that um, moral emotions do, which are moral emotions or emotions that are specifically tied to making moral judgments, is they elicit the attempt to find a moral reason for the emotion. So, like, when you're angry, you try and find a reason for the anger. And only if you're completely denied any ability for finding a reason will you give up. And even then, sometimes not. I've seen people kick trees because they walked into them. <laughs> Right, it's still because the tree's you've fault. Because you've already hit it once, so why yeah. not twice? <laughs> you slammed the door so hard it bounced back and hits you in the face again. Like it's the door's <laughs> fault, you slammed it. Right, you hit it, yeah. Yeah, and that was a fun tangent. And this is the other reason this conference is great. There's a lot of very educated people that are speaking about the same kind of things that we're speaking about and have the same kind of passions that we're talking about. And that's just a wonderful thing to be a part of. And you're very right, I did get to know like half of the people there by sight last time. I'm, by the way, just incredibly bad with names. I have a, a learning disability in that space around, around learning people's names. And I laugh, but it's actually true. I, I, had a, I had a best friend in middle school for two years. I never learned his name. After oh, like shut six, up. After really? Like six, no, yeah, for sure. After six months, I became too embarrassed to ask. I loved him. I thought he was great. I just didn't know his name. Yeah. And you just never heard anybody else call him by Nobody name? ever uses anyone's name, really. 
right? Like, I mean, he was my friend. We might, we might, we'd meet up at lunch. We weren't in classes. So they didn't do ah. they didn't do the the daily like where is everybody? We all had the same lunch period, and we'd get together and play video games at lunch. But you don't you don't even use people's names. I think I knew it at some point, right? But you're like, hey, and you see your friend. You don't go, you know, unless you're trying to get them to pull out of a crowd. You don't yell at them. No, but I de- I've definitely seen that with, with my kids. Where they'll go meet somebody, like, we'll be somewhere, and they'll meet somebody and hang out with them all day long. And I'll be like, oh, who's your new friend? Um, I don't know. I don't know his name. <laughs> because there was never a reason to to name someone. Well, so. and names are actually stored in a completely separate section of memory. Most of your memories that you think of as your personality are stored in what's called autobiographical memory, which basically means your life in order. Names are not stored in that section because they're not part of the order of your life. They're a label. So they're stored in a different memory section. So you can be really great with autobiographical memory and still not remember people's names, which is why there are some people who are just terrible at remembering names. And my autobiographical memory is tabbed with music. Like Mm -hmm. Some people have smell and... Like, I, re- I remember things by what was on the radio then. or I would love to, to take years and just study memory. Well, and fascinatingly, you know, unique, too, is the other weird thing is that almost everyone remembers very differently. That, that's one of the things that I think helped me become way more compassionate and accepting of other people is realizing that you think other people are like you and other people are not like you, not even mentally, not even the smallest bit. I, for instance, I have no visual memory. I have a, a condition called aphantasia. I cannot, well, sorry, that's not right. I have a visual memory. I don't have a visual imagination, so I can't create mental imagery. Huh. I can't remember what anyone, including my wife, looks like when she's not in the room. So you must keep a lot of pictures on you. You know, oddly, I don't like pictures. Really? I don't know why. Uh, But again, I don't, I do actually have a visual memory so when she like when she shows back up I'm like oh that's 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 my part <laughs> like I, it's not like I don't know who she or my son is they don't walk in the room and I don't go who's that he's small and cute you know like, <laughs> I, I know it's my son but if someone like if you got kidnapped and they were like draw him and you know I my room I'm looking around at drawings that you know one art shows I could not draw him <laughs> uh, those are all from life right so I can draw a person if they stand in front of me but huh take them away so yeah i would assume that you you appreciate pictures then yeah i don't know because it does have that visual i think i think pictures freak me out when they age i'm starting to like pictures more than now that i'm older but when i was young it always creeped me out when people age or when the pictures age when when people age because remember i don't have a visual i can't i can't visualize right so when i remember myself being seven i look exactly like this only tiny Right, and so when I'd see a picture of myself being seven, it would freak me out. And it's way better as an adult, because adults don't change as much. I have pictures for the last ten years of my partner and me, and we look the same. You know, so... Because <laughs> you, don't, you don't change so much once you hit, like, a certain age. I look back you and I'm like, oh, I'm just slightly rounder and younger looking, but basically the same. <laughs> you know, I, ha- I do something similar, but it's in my dream. When I dream, mm-hmm. I'm 16-year-old Mandy. Like, <laughs> I look like 16-year-old Mandy. Every time. I don't look like old 38-year-old Mandy. Like, it's always 16-year-old Mandy in my dreams. Yeah, so I'm, now, that I have a, now that I have a child, son, I'm definitely starting to like pictures more. Because he's super adorable, and I love pictures, and I now totally get why my parents took lots of pictures of me. And not that I think I would have done anything different, because the pictures upset me, so I wouldn't have wanted to see them still. But, but I do feel slightly worse for saying no to so many pictures for them. 
I should have you talk to my children. Because I have a son that just refuses to be photographed unless it's on his terms and he's very picky about it. Yeah, I think the thing that I learned about having a kid recently is I had no idea how much my parents loved me. Aww. Because as a kid, you always have parents. Well, so that... you, maybe you did. <laughs> well, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> most, most, most of my friends always had whatever parents they had. Whatever parents right. they had. I'll say that. Yeah. I'll say that. I had a friend who had four parents, so you know, whatever. For whatever parents you have, you always had. Unless they show back up or something. But, but, but for me, at least, I always had. That's a good point. I, I always had the same two parents. Okay. And I know they, you know they took care of me and stuff. But they were just sort of fixtures of my my reality. You don't ha- you don't have any memories of of like being younger and your parents doing something and you going, God, they must really love me since they did that. No, I don't. And I think part of the yeah, I mean, part of the reason is I I, I saw it as a given, right? I guess um, I had really great parents, by the way. I should say I often have a lot of the equivalent <laughs> to survivor's guilt with parents, mm-hmm. where um like you know they talk about people that come home from war and they're like. Nothing happened to me, and I'm a horrible person because all my friends died. I have that because all of my friends have super traumatic lives, and I'm like, so I grew up upper middle class, white. My mom was a teacher, so she got me into all the best schools, and then we ate lunch together a lot of times. You have white privilege guilt, sir. I do. <laughs> but but even more than that, like, completely normative. Like, I don't know anybody who can say, like, with all honesty, their childhood was as good as it possibly could have been. Right. I can say that. Really? Yeah. Like, I, I literally couldn't have been better. Right? So, like, it's always a weird discussion when I'm talking with my friends who have, like, really messed up childhoods. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, I want to bond with you on that. Don't know what that's like. <laughs> you <laughs> say, oh, I'm came sorry to, to hear that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know watch, you'd watch a, you know, Hook growing up and the dad that never comes to your plays. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. My dad packs me lunch and cuts off the crusts. Aww. But I guess I do a lot of things myself because I'm supposed to do them, you know? Mm -hmm. So I guess I just assumed that... I mean, I knew my parents liked me, and I liked my parents, but I guess I just always assumed that they they did them because it was the right thing to do, like what you're supposed to do. I mean, you you know... It was just their job. Yeah, it's their job. Yeah. Well, I used to tell them that, right? Because they'd be like, you know, you're so selfish, you know, when I wouldn't want to help at all. And, um, you know something like that and i'd be like you know what i didn't choose to have parents or be born ah. you wanted to have me you wanted me that's you on you i never wanted any of this you were that little prick i, I was uh, my mom's favorite memory of me is when i was like seven i came home and i was like mom i just realized you can't punish me unless i let you and she was like excuse what and i was like well you need my participation to punish me because you're not going to injure me and you can ground me, but I could just leave. I have to choose to stay. You know, you could take my toys away, but I could just take them back from your room or take your things from your room. And it's not like you could really stop me. I have to participate in allowing you to punish me. I have to accept that if you say I have to go to my room, I have to go to my room. <laughs> your poor mother. <laughs> well, no, I, I, she, she really loves this story because there's one more part of that story, which was, but... I, I love you, and I like, you know, that you do more for me than I would get from, you know, not being, basically for not agreeing to, to participate. So the uh, system works for both of us. You get to punish right. me, and I get a better life than I would get if I didn't participate in you punishing me. 
But it was just sort of an interesting revelation for me that I was actually choosing to participate in the punishment system and that the system, in a sense, worked. Yeah, most most children don't realize that until they're teenagers. Yeah. That, oh, wait, hey, I don't have to take this punishment. Like, I'm, you know, fairly grown, and if I don't want to be here, I can just leave. Right, but so yeah. anyway, so then I had a kid, and I love my son stupidly much. Like, he's just, like, radiates pure joy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I guess every parent knows that. Yeah, like you, there's no, there's no measurement of it. Like it's yeah. off the charts the way that you feel about your children. Yeah, although I'm a dad, so I still like my partner more. <laughs> uh, which which you can read a lot about. That's a common thing. Dads get um, we get they get uh, well this I think polyamory actually helps with this, but you know a lot of dads get like partner partner jealousy because mm-hmm. they're they feel like they're they're losing their partner to their kids, and dads generally love their kids but may like their their partners a little bit more. Um, oh yeah I definitely experienced that with my like having my children mm -hmm. my partners being like my well uh, hell even even like dating and having a teenager um, because I was a single mom for a little bit Mm -hmm. and so dating and having a teenager I would have partners who were jealous of my 15 year old son (laughs) I'm like you like you do realize that like he's my kid like, why are you jealous of him? I have to give him attention. And, like, I have to be a mom to him. I'm choosing to do, like, to be with you and spend my time with you. Why are you jealous? That you you should be winning. Like, that you should feel like you're winning. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's just a fundamental, again, you know, you talk about the, emo- like the uh, core emotion versus the confabulated assignment of reason. And the core emotion is just, you're just not there. It's not logical. It's not thought through it's just like i wanted you to be around and you have less time because you're putting some time into this child right it's just a straight functional response i wanted more time didn't get it (laughs) (laughs) but no no but you know and i I think that was it though like you said you have to do that right so i think i just always assumed my parents would have felt like terrible human beings they weren't decent parents until i had kids and then i sort of understood better let's uh let's go talk about the the actual question okay Um, The question for today, and this comes up all the time, I hear the phrase couple privilege a lot, uh, but I'm not sure exactly what that means or exactly how to avoid it is something that I have people ask me. And I'm sure this comes up for you as well. Oh, absolutely. This is something that I think is really hot button for a lot of people because a lot of people don't want to be accused of being having privilege. They act like saying that you have privilege is an accusation of almost bad behavior or deserving of guilt or owing someone something in a direct sort of ethical way. And it's much more about recognizing the way that society, I don't want to say unnaturally, but that society actually makes choices that construct who has built-in advantages and disadvantages in social settings. Do you want to add something to that? The term privileges to me is that you just, you kind of get more shots at something like you you get an easier road to something yeah i think the the core part that i wanted to pull out there and maybe i didn't hit it right but is that that they're con- that they're constructed by society sort of um not at random but not based on anything particularly ethical like it's not ethically better to be white it's not ethically right. better to be a couple you know starting to look at dating new people than it is to be a single person dating 
Uh, it doesn't right. have any sort of ethical salience, but it somehow controls those situations. And then, of course, we're in the sort of full heyday right now, I think, of uh, intersectionality, which is the idea that I think is really helpful for this. That is that there's actually like, uh, they talk about it with enmeshed privileges and oppressions, which is the idea that there are dozens of axes, axes of privilege and oppression, and you can be made up of any set of that group. So you can be, for example, white and male, but also be disabled, gay, not cis-normative, not mononormative. Impoverished. It's, yeah. Poverty, obviously, is a huge one in our society because of the way that it's structured around wealth. Not that most societies aren't structured around wealth, but maybe even more so than many other Western societies. I completely agree. Where wealth, wealth here is weird because it's not just wealth, it also translates to virtue for a lot of people, right? Like, being wealthy is a virtue, not just a benefit, and it's really mm -hmm. strange. And we're like, oh, he must be a good guy. He's rich. <laughs> it's usually the opposite. And are like, okay, that's an odd, odd thought. And so when we talk about couple privilege, we talk about basically built-in structural and social advantages that couples sometimes, I think primarily, subconsciously, leverage against people they may be dating individually or together that put those people into a disadvantaged and potentially often uh, sort of unethical situation. Hierarchical, Polly, mm -hmm. definitely feeds couples privilege. That's one that's also super contentious in the community. So you do, do you think that hierarchical poly sort of necessarily is a couple's privilege issue, uh, has couple privilege issue, or do you think that can be navigated? Um, no, I, no, I don't think it can be navigated. I think that if you if you practice a hierarchical poly, it inherently says that this relationship is more important than that relationship. It's almost the definition of couples privilege. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, I think I know, and, and it's funny because it, it is it is actually very it is still very contentious though. I think I think a lot of people don't like when when people say that. Well, people don't like to be the bad guy. No, people don't like to be the well. They don't like to be the bad guy, and people, as it turns out, do love free privileges. So if you're that, yes, we do as people, as a people, we do love free all privileges. All people love that. So if you're getting yes. free privileges and you find out you're getting free privileges, you have two choices. You can realize that and you can give them up, or you can pretend you didn't realize that. And <laughs> I think a lot of people work really hard to not realize that. I wouldn't even say pretend. Work really hard to just not see it. Don't look it in the eye. Don't really ignore right. it. If you ignore it, it goes away and it doesn't exist. Yeah, I think that's right. I think true hierarchical poly has to have couple privilege problems just built into it. I always throw this one out there. Um, for people in the BDSM community, you know, as a clarifier, if you have someone who's um, in the sort of submissive role, that doesn't necessarily make it a hierarchical relationship, even if two of the other people are both in dominant roles. So that person, because that person has accepted that in a very carefully laid out contract that they could always void, walk away from, which is itself its own form of power. It's completely negotiated consensually. Right. Yeah. That's right. So it looks like hierarchical poly sometimes, right? Because you can say, well, these two people are in charge. They get to set the rules. But the other person wanted that. Right. As an expression of their own power, actually. Right. Um, so it, it isn't truly hierarchical in that way. Well, and, and if you start bringing crossover, you know, BDSM crossovers in into it, it's going to get 
incredibly complicated. It is. I just like just to throw that know. one out there because uh, well, there's a lot of crossovers. But I mean, half the uh, half of this conference docket uh, from last year at least was like BDSM classes. So we were super uh, heavy BDSM last year. We're actually not going to be this year. So oh really? We were just we were trying something new. We hadn't had a lot of BDSM mm-hmm. classes in the past, and it had been requested by many attendees. Yeah, well, I mean, and there's a huge overlay, right? I mean, it's, yeah, it's one of those absolutely. ones where you're reading a book, and it's like, if you're trying to find poly people, go to BDSM clubs and go to LARPs, and you will find more poly people. <laughs> to LARPs, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, LARPs, man. Oh, man, I'm a, I'm a LARPer. I was, anyway. I haven't LARPed in a while. I just haven't had the time or money, and... I got to the point where my life's like a weird little adventure where I'm doing like ge- deeds for yes. goodness and stuff, so I don't really need to go LARPing for it. But it's like, oh, I could spend the same time making a costume that I could actually protest something or write a paper about being more ethical. That's a hard sell. Oh! I'm gonna stay here. <laughs> gonna stay um, home. Yeah, or I could go get the brewing feat, or I started doing brewing. You know? Ah. So I make mead. I make really great mead, actually. Um, then you should probably bring me some. I will. I will bring you some. All right. Um, also, for any of you who are going to the APW, I'm also bringing some to put in the charity auction they have every year. Yes. Because last year I came way too empty-handed. I did not know that <laughs> so was a thing So you have to make it up, up this year. Yeah. So this year I noticed I paid attention. Last year the things that sold the best were alcohol. Alcohol does so well. crafts. This is an yes. alcoholic craft. So I think I've got so, it. Bingo. Yeah, well, and I, I have a what was my I have a cute name for this too because we're probably Polly. I'm gonna put little like stickers and stuff on it that I've drawn up that say maybe mead. <laughs> probably Polly presents maybe mead. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Hold on, focus. I gotta I gotta focus this time. So we're on a couple of privilege and we're trying to ask about sort of how it comes up and then. And then how to how to work on not having it come up. So basically, one of the things that happens is, especially in poly communities, most people want to get two people and <clears throat> then add partners. And it's really difficult to date people when you're already a couple because of the problems of couple privilege. Well, right? it's really it's really difficult to date people. Period. Yeah. But when you have to date two people, like that's ridiculous. Here we're talking about couple privilege, both. When you have to date both people, but also if you're just dating one person of the couple, but they're you you know they have like couple they have like rules or something that they've agreed to. Okay. So like the wider the wider one, yeah, for sure. Uh, if it's not obvious why having to date two people at once is really hard, it's because it's two people, <laughs> right? Right. Finding one person you match with is basically a minor miracle in this life. Right. So that the person that they chose to match with happens to also be the person that matches perfectly with you. I mean, it must happen? Well, I mean, yeah, it absolutely happens. Just needle in a haystack kind of thing. It's not your everyday. So, yeah, I mean, dating a couple, besides the fact that you're actually trying to foster two relationships at the exact same time with people who have their own relationship, but you're also on top of that having to deal with couples privilege. Yeah. And, And what they say behind closed doors behind you or, you know, about you and rules and and things like that yeah right so i don't date couples (laughs) (laughs) but you do date people who are who are dating other people right i do if you go on a quick survey of okcupid like 30 percent of the people on okcupid are like yeah i would be in an open relationship and then like if they bother to put subtext underneath it they'll write and be like but i want to i want to have a partner first and then we'll open up our relationship i don't want to date anyone that's dating someone 
Right, because they don't want to deal with couples privilege. Right, because they I don't mean, want to deal with couples privilege, but yeah. also because they want couples. Privilege. But they want couples privilege. It's that. Yeah. It's that. Like you said, that that want to have privileges and those right. free privileges. Yeah. yeah, they figured out there's something about being the couple that puts you in a better position, and they haven't really put a word or a name to it, but they think people should want to date them when they're doing to other people what they don't want done to them. So Absolutely. hopefully we can break that, talk about that cycle and break that cycle down so people can date each other more easily. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so what's going on there basically is, let's see, I to go back to monogamy here, I think, for this one. Most of us who are poly grew up in monogamous cultural structures. So what we know about dating, what we think we know about dating, our intuitive underlying reactions to dating are based on monogamous standards. Right, what we, what we were taught by our monogamous society. Right, and one of the things that monogamy teaches you is that you can control your partner. Possession. That partner's right. yours. You own that partner and right. you can control them. You are so, mine. So even when people start getting into the idea, well, I want to date multiple people and, and I want my partner to date multiple people, they often automatically replicate that behavior without thinking about it. They feel safer if they're part of the couple because there's a joint ownership that happens that they feel like gives them a privileged position that will protect them from the vagaries of polyamory and how that might cost them their partner or the person they care about. Well, I think it's the it's the establishment. It's the established relationship mm -hmm. that makes that that sense of security and that mm -hmm. that sense of privilege. And that's one of the reasons is that people want that established relationship first is its security mm -hmm. above everything. And and that's I think where couples privilege stems from mm -hmm. is that feeling of okay we've we've opened our relationship up we've realized that we can share love with more than one person oh but i don't i don't want my love to be gone we got to set some rules here <laughs> you know and of course it is the fallacy right uh, it's wrong you cannot right. control your partner through relationships, which is, you know, what, what was it, 40% of people in monogamous relationships, one member is cheating at any given time, right? So as, right. As, as monogamy cheating statistics will tell you, you actually cannot control the other member, that that's an illusion that monogamous culture says things like, well, if you keep your partner from other people, they won't cheat. If you don't let your partner have friends of the opposite sex, they won't cheat. Right. And so it's that same illusion and that same belief and the same thing that all of your friends are telling you all the time. Because obviously everybody who's ever been in any sort of consensual non-monogamous relationship has heard at least a thousand times from random people, this is going to destroy your existing relationship. So, you know, for years we were definitely like, okay, well, we have rules about, you know, what we each can do to keep our, you know, to keep our little egos and our sense of control intact. And we didn't really date anyone when that was happening. So it didn't, it didn't hurt anyone, but I could easily see how it could have looking at other people having had those sorts of relationships and that sort of couple privilege. So some of the, some of the things I'll talk about this is, is so we can do examples of sort of couple privilege options, right? So really early on, we had a rule that was something like, oh jeez, these are so bad, it's embarrassing, but. Oh no, it's, I, I promise you, if, if you've got them, I've got them worse. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where it was like, all right, well, when you start dating someone else, like you'll tell, we'll tell each other if we like someone and then we'll we'll ask the other person before we move to like each sort of like you had to make up make up stages but you know like specific romantic stages like we'll ask before like we go on a date we'll ask before we like start kissing someone or 
you know, like sort of negotiate right. like what we what we think is safe that the person do. Like it's okay if you, you know, go to second base but not third base yet. I'm not I'm not ready for that. Yeah, I definitely experienced some of that. Yeah, well, because you've never done anything like it, there's no roadmap in the same way. Right. One of the things that we had to grow out of of couples privilege early on was uh, vetoes. Vetoes are awful. You know, looking back, vetoes are, I mean, that's just disgusting behavior right there. I've heard two different structures of veto, which are very different. I want to know which one we're talking about. Veto is a common term that comes up in poly literature about basically being able to terminate either specific behaviors or specific relationships. That's got to be hierarchical poly. Even if you didn't list it as hierarchical poly, if you're allowed to terminate other relationships, you are on top. Yeah. Um, I think that's clear. The two different versions, though, like, we had, we never had a rule, like, we were never allowed to terminate existing relationships, but we could terminate pre-existing relationships or, like, steps in your relationship. You could right? terminate a pre-existing relationship? It's in theory, we never did this, but you could be like, hey, I like this person, and the other person could be like, no, you can't date them. Oh, right? so you okay. could veto right. a relationship like that. That was like a pre veto, yeah, okay. Yeah, right. Right. Well, so, well, well, that's what a veto really is, right? I mean, not, not in monogamous, not in polyamorous literature, but the, the, the word, the legal precedent for it. You don't veto right. a law once it's already once a law. Once it's already, yeah. Right? They present the law and you go, mm, no. no, not Right? Work. So we had that kind of veto structure. Um, ah. Where if someone presented a new relationship structure or a new person or a new relationship motion, the other person could be like, no, veto. Um, but we never had, we had a sort of a, a stop, I forgot that's stop, stop back. You, you couldn't go back though. No take back basically. So if you were like, <laughs> if you, if you let me date this girl, you can't, you can't later veto her. I, cause that's not fair to her. Like we, right. we at least got that. We weren't Cause perfect, it was fair we, we to her that. in the beginning, but it wasn't yeah. fair to her then. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, it, I know we learned yeah. girl out yet. It's a lot fairer. I, I'll stick with it's a lot fairer. I'm sorry. Oh. If I haven't asked a girl out yet. And I'm like, I'm going to ask her out. And my partner's like, please don't. Like, that's way more fair than me dating someone for, like, a year and then being like, well, my wife said you got to go. Okay, not maybe great. maybe more fair to her, but not yeah. maybe as fair to you. Yeah, probably not more fair to myself, for sure. Yeah. It doesn't let me explore and be myself, but it's more fair to... Well, and I, I have to admit, I've always been much less worried about mistreating myself ethically than other people. I know, it, like, self-care is important, but, like, when I'm making decisions, I'd rather not harm other people first. And, fair enough, then, yeah. And then worry about me. Because also, because I know me better. Like, I know if I'm surviving. You know, if I was miserable in my relationship, then I would just tell my partner and work it out or leave. But, right. you know, I don't know what this other person, this other human being is thinking or feeling. You know, so I'm we had we had that. the We had the pre-veto. In my current, my, like, my current husband, like, my, my first husband. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's not my first husband, but he's my current first husband. We've been together for probably eight years in the beginning we had um we had like that pre-veto when we both liked the same person but i have a hard fast rule for myself that i don't date people my husband dates hmm. like mm-hmm. it's just it's too weird for me it's entirely too hmm. incestual for me it, it just leaves a bad taste in my mouth i don't want to screw up a relationship that's not even mine yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't, you know, if we're dating the same person separately, because we don't, I, I don't date as a couple. Right, um, right, of course. But, you know, I don't want to do something to screw up his relationship with this person, because I've screwed up something with my relationship with that person. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, um, right, because something cataclysmic happens, and it's like, 
you guys can't really even work it out or be in the same room. Right. And then we can't even be metas at that point. <laughs> yeah. So, Poison um, the well. right. So we, we definitely like called a mutual veto on something mm-hmm. that we both liked. I came to him and I was like, I really like her. And he was like, well, I really like her too. And I'm like, okay, then we can't date her period. Like across the board, we shouldn't date her. Hmm. Like as a, hmm. we, as a, you, as a me, mm-hmm. we shouldn't date her. And that's been years ago. That's the only time I think that we've ever done a pre-veto. I'll definitely look. Ryan has come home and has been interested in someone he works with or something like that. And I'll go, hmm, is that one really smart? So again, we want to really stress, there's a difference between discussing your honest opinions with the people that you care about and who care about you and telling them what they're allowed to do. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. And So, you know, I'll do that. I'm just yeah. telling you that that might end badly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, and I think I think everybody's been there. I think everybody knows we've dated terrible people. For us. Sorry, I'll only clarify that again. I, I always do mean for us. When I say terrible people, I don't think people are terrible ever, really. But I do think you have bad matches. You have matches that are unhealthy for you to be in that won't work out. They'll just be destructive. Um, we've all done that. And when you're alone, you're just looking back on yourself with that. When you're dating other people, of course, they're going to be like, hey, does that really look like it? But you used to have friends that did that, right? I mean, I used to right. go date people and or think about dating people with my friends and be like, man, that's mm-hmm. dumb. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> my partners just become my adult friends, right? My my partners yes. are the ones that know me so well enough to go, that's... Well, and if you're you can't re- trust your partner that. to go, ooh, do you really think that that's a good idea? Like, right. like I think that they're they're the ex- they're exactly the people that you should be able to go to 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 find out if that person's going to be a good match for you or not. But but here's also where it gets sort of sticky, right? Because then very quickly you also go, wait, but where is the line between that and sort of couple privilege? I think this is where, you know, my, my constant call to sort of whenever you make an action that could benefit you in some way, you should step back and check to make sure you're not making it to benefit you or that if you are, you're also expressly stating that to the person. Yeah, right. I always make sure that I'm like, you know, I just, th- this is just my opinion mm-hmm. on the matter as a friend of this person and right. the potential relationship we're talking about here. Because um, it's, it's not a far jump from that to actual functional veto without having veto, right? Oh, yeah. You could definitely manipulate the situation. <laughs> right, right. So like, I don't think are... that person's good for you. I don't think that right. person's. <laughs> the, the nobody's ever good enough for you, so we're yeah. poly, but only I date people and no one's ever good enough for you relationships, <laughs> oh. which we've seen people be in. I've dated one of those guys before. His wife felt that way. Nobody was ever good enough for him, but mm. everybody was good enough for her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's the sort of, you know, that's the kind of couple privilege I'm much more interested in, honestly, because it's the much more insidious kind. It's it's so much less obvious. I mean, I know hierarchical is problematic, and I know, like, direct vetoes are problematic, but at least those are ones that if someone says that to you, you can go, hmm. You know, like, I knew someone who was getting into a relationship, and the person they were thinking about seeing was like, oh, my, you know, my partner, I have a rule that we're only allowed to have have kids with each other and only allowed to live with each other and they were like "Mm, let's talk about that yeah you know like that's a really obvious warning sign it's much worse and they're like no we don't have any rules and nothing like that at all and then when it comes time to talk about moving in the other partner's like i don't know if i'd really want to live with them and bringing that up ryan my my other nesting partner when we first started dating you know he was like 
so where do you see this like do you, do you see us together in like four years or like what's what do you, what are your plans for us like what do you, what would you like to see and i was like i would love to see you move in and i would love to marry you eventually and you know i think that we would that we would be we would make a great couple that could last years and years you know if this continues and he was like okay question one i'm sorry you want me to move in and live with you and your other partner like is that a thing can we do that like (laughs) and he had experienced so much couples privilege Mm -hmm. privilege prior to dating me yeah that he didn't realize that that could even happen and right. he was like, and, and I'm sorry, you're already married. I don't know if you know this, but you're already married, Mandy. So we mm-hmm. can't get married. I'm like, in whose eyes can we not yeah. get married? Not, not in the state's eyes. Right. Like, um, you know, and personally, I don't invite the state into my marriages. You know, right. like, I, it's it's really for me above every, you know, me and my partner. So yeah. who says we can't get married and, and have a commitment ceremony to each other? For sure. And he was just like... I remember him stopping and just thinking, like, you could you could see it on his face where, like, this, the clouds cleared, mm-hmm. almost. And it was just like, wow. I can have, like, all those things that I wanted as a child mm-hmm. when I thought that monogamy was the only thing there, that there was. So you make that plan as a child. You know, I'm going to get married and I'm going to have kids and we're going to have a house with a picket fence and yada yada. Like those you you get to have those things and and not have to be monogamous and it just like the clouds parted and the angels sang for him and was just like couples privilege isn't the only thing out there that you know that there are there are people who have other partners that i can date that aren't going to treat me like a second class citizen you know i've been sort of trying to figure out the soundbite version of, a, of diagnosing couples privilege because you know in, in the end I think people eventually want to be able to be like wait is this couples privilege is it not and I think you can look and really easily it's couples privilege anytime the relationship between you and the person that you're dating is in any way controlled by your par- existing partner Right, that the relationship that you have with each partner is a relationship between you and that person, not between you and someone else and that person, even in like a tangential way. Okay, so I have a question regarding mm-hmm. that because you have sure. people who are nesting partners. Right. You and your partner cohabitate, right? Mm-hmm. Or well, at least one of your partners, you and one of your Correct. partners cohabitate. And mm-hmm. you have a child together. Yep. So you have invested mm-hmm. things into your relationship. Mm-hmm. that you won't have invested into other relationships. You have, you know, you and right. your your partner share money and a child and a sure. home and things like that. So when you can't go out with someone because your wife won't keep your child that night, mm-hmm. then like right. that that becomes couples privilege, but it's not a couples privilege that you can really avoid. Well, but is that is that well, is that couple's privilege and is that always so flat, right? So, you know, let me try and I mean, there's reasons behind what, you know, like maybe maybe she's like, I don't like that chick. You're, I'm not going to watch our child tonight so you can go out. Then right. there's well, also like, you know, she maybe, maybe it's completely non-malicious. It's, it's mm-hmm. 
she's tired because she worked all day long and she would really not like to watch your child or y'all's child right you know that evening i mean to me that's a that's a couple's privilege because now you've got to cancel your date with someone else because your wife came home tired Mm -hmm. and that's you know more important because she helps pay half the bills right when you have nesting partners and you have Mm -hmm. invested relationships sure there there is going to be a certain amount of couples privilege that you can't just completely wipe off the board that may be true which is for sure some privileges you can't remove right we know that white privilege is a thing so if you're a white person dating a person of color or someone a black person right then you you can't remove that privilege that privilege exists and so all you can do is frontline it in every conversation so that you keep it in mind and do your best to balance it the best that you can. But I would also say that a lot of the things that you listed are sort of financial obligations or the social, the sorts of obligations that you can have to all sorts of people who aren't actually your, your partner. And I think yeah. that you can think about that in a disentangled way that doesn't necessarily bring it into, like, so if I had a babysitter taking care of my son on a day that I was going to go on a date instead of my wife and my babysitter called and said, hey, my other job was really terrible today and I'm exhausted. I just can't take your son today. I would be in the position of either canceling my date or doing something that I could take my son on the date with, assuming I felt comfortable doing that. Right. Personally, and you know, I'm not going to get too into this today, but I don't introduce my son to partners unless I think they're going to be part of his life for like the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be a really big commitment part. Like, the, I just don't see any reason to put him through loss of people that he doesn't understand why they're coming and going. So I wouldn't probably do that. But that would be my choice, though, right? That would be the same choice I'd make if the babysitter couldn't take him. Right. And so I don't necessarily think that that's automatically couples privilege. Now, like what you said, if my partner is making choices about when she's willing to take him based on if she likes who I'm dating. Well, right, that's malicious. Then, then, then that's, that's um, yeah. well, that's well, that's specifically couple privilege then, right? Because yeah. that's, that's a form of a veto. I'll just make it so you can never actually manage to go on a date. Right, that's that manipulative. Um, but I would say I'm not, I'm not not going on my date because my wife comes first. I'm not going on my date because my son comes first. And that's the exact same that would be true if I was a single parent and my babysitter called out or my parents were going to take him and they called out or my brother was going to take him and he called out. And so I don't necessarily know that I say that that has to feel like couples privilege. But also, you know, I I live with um, sort of an extended friends group. I live with my best friend, uh, my mother-in-law, and my my partner. And uh, I also wouldn't ask someone to move in if my best friend didn't approve of them living with us because we live together. This is the thing that gets really complicated. Like, like you know, you talked about, like, we don't really invite the state into our relationships because why, why, why would we? But I also am legally married to Lissa because it helps me get, you know, health insurance at a rate that I can afford. So it's financially viable for me, but that's almost more of a business partnership than a relationship partnership. Right. Um, so when I say my relationship with each of my partners is with them, my relationship with my, my wife is with her. I mean it like the part of my relationship that is romantic to the extent that I can make a relationship romantic instead of practical like business or nesting or financial concerns or child care concerns is between us and that negotiations about that happen between us. Like one of the things that I, you know, have had trouble with in the past that I think is maybe leftovers of the sort of the assumptions of couple privilege or like you talk about like, we get, that's possible? You know, it's mm-hmm. like inviting a, a someone I'm dating to my room that I have my own room, right, to spend the night and then being like, I don't know, I don't want to be in your wife's space. 
Right. I want to talk to her personally about it. And I'm like, look, you and me is between you and me. Obviously, if you're not comfortable being in the house because you think like, you're not comfortable with my wife, that's fine. You can talk to her. But, like, I, like... <laughs> I'm telling you it's okay and it's my space. And I think they're so used to the whole couple's privilege thing because that's totally a thing. Like someone spends the night in, you know, the the couple bed and then the the other partner now hates them because that was their yes. space and Ooh. they got thrown out of their space and God, that's a huge thing in couple privilege. We we the the bed thing. That used to be one of Jerry's big hang ups was mm. uh when we shared you know, when we shared space and we shared a bed, he didn't want anybody in his bed. Because mm-hmm. that was his space and like his area, and I'm like it's a bed with right. linens on it, and like it's just a bed. It's a piece of furniture. I mean, we can we can act like the dressers that way too if you really want, but like right. it's it's still a piece of furniture. Like you could you could go so far as to say I don't want anybody on the couch because that's my couch. And and that and that again goes back to the question of well you know one some of those things do go back to like a sense of ownership and how you feel about ownership. Like, who owns the couch? Do you care who uses the couch? The bed, the house. But but those are not necessarily relationship questions so much as, like, life arrangement questions, house arrangement, household questions. The same kind of questions you could have with anyone. This is where I can this is where I can I can break that out and say okay well here's about my relationship with one partner and here's my relationship with another partner right so if I was in that position I would say something like all right well I need the kind of bed space that I can invite partners to so you know how can you and I have a relationship that allows me to have a bed that I can invite partners to right and maybe that means getting another bed but needing to get another bed is something that is about your relationship with your your current partner, not about your relationship with your new partner, right? Because that shouldn't stop you from being able to be with them, and you can still make choices like like you would have again. Like, that's a living question. Like, when I was a kid, I didn't bring, you know, girls home to my parents' house because they wouldn't let me, <laughs> right? So I went right. to, the, to the girls' dorm, right? Because um, they had parent privilege. Right. <laughs> parent privilege. <laughs> right, um, you know... But there was there was definitely a time where I had to be more selective with partners I chose based on their circumstances because right. there wasn't a place to come where I could bring them into my home, you know, overnight right. or mm-hmm. or even to just, you know, Netflix and chill. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's a and obviously some of that's wealth privilege, but also some of that's a question of, you know, what are you willing to see as a place to be and what do you think other people are willing to see as a place to be like you know one of the beds that we have right now is like just like a futon on the floor in the corner of a room that my wife uses for with so she can have a place to sleep with our son for naps and stuff that no one else is going to be in Mm -hmm. and it's like if you're fine with that that's fine like that's where i slept for a while when he was first born you know so that they could have the full on bedroom so that they could have quiet and all that kind of good stuff and speaking of my wife and son I'm about out of time because they're going to be home and they are extremely loud. There's no, there's no Speaking of sharing spaces and negotiating spaces, there's nowhere in this house that my son does not reach with his screen because um, we live in a relatively small space. So I had them, I had them go out for the afternoon and then pick up a uh, go to like a dog for a walk and it's uh, bedtime. Ah. So, well, thank you for being on the show. This has been really a lot of fun and I. I so look forward to coming down to the APW again and getting to speak again. It was such a great group last time. Well, I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. And, you know, anytime that you ever just want to banter back and forth, I would love to do it again. 